Take your Bibles, uh, turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 24. It's in the daily Bible reading, so we're going to look at it today. Isaiah, chapter 24. You're going to recognize the half a dozen places in Isaiah uh, Isaiah 24 that you're going to remember from somewhere else in Scripture. And so the guideline that I want to give you today is we're trying to help you make sense of what you're reading in a book that's very difficult to understand because we're out from under the historical circumstances and we have to try to recreate all of that for the people who lived in that day. They understood it well, but we don't because we're beyond the history of that time period. And so the goal that I, that's the goal, but what we want you to do this morning is to connect with what you already know when we look through this passage of Scripture. Now, Isaiah 24, 25, 26, and 27, all in the daily Bible reading, are well known to be a sermon all by itself. Things begin to change in the book of Isaiah. You have so many passages of Scripture that are like walking through a dangerous forest. All of a sudden, you come to a clearing, a beautiful wide open space with a grand vista. And that's what you have in Isaiah 24, 25, 26, and 27. Look at chapter 24, verse 1. Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste, distorts its surface and scatters abroad its inhabitants. And you say, wait a minute, doesn't look like we've come out of the dangerous forest just yet. It looks like we're still there. Well, you're going to, you're going to have to ask yourself the question of whether or not you're going to focus on the overwhelming blessings of these four chapters, or are you going to focus on the negative things? I kind of liken it this way. You know, an optimist is the kind of a person who believes that a housefly is really looking for a way out. But have you ever thought that before? And I, I always think, oh, that guy wants to get out. He just wants to agitate me. He wants to irritate me. It's kind of like the husband who came home from work after a very long and terrible day. Everything had gone wrong where he was working. And he said to his wife, quote, I've had nothing but bad news at the office today. If there's one thing I don't want, it is more bad news. And so his wife gently replied, in that case, you'll be glad to know that three of your four children did not break their arms today. So think about that. Uh, Think about that. So let's take a look at this passage of Scripture. Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste, distorts its surface and scatters abroad inhabitants. There are four key words in that passage of Scripture. Four action words. The Lord makes, the Lord empties, the Lord distorts, the Lord scatters. Now you think about that. A lot of people will look at that passage of Scripture in this day and age because they have been trained to think 
this earth grew and developed through a process called evolution. And they'll immediately look at this passage of Scripture and say, hey, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I don't think the Lord has any power to do that. I don't even believe He exists. I don't think He's involved if He does exist. That's what a lot of people will say. But we have many, many examples of the Lord doing just that. Many examples. For instance, the people who lived in the Roman Empire in 79 AD when Mount Vesuvius blew its top and buried the cities of Herculaneum and Pompeii in 60 feet of ash would have said, yeah, we see the reality of that passage of Scripture where it took two hours to send the message to Rome by, by campfire overnight from mountain to mountain. Destroyed a region. You and I, in this day and age, in 1980, would acknowledge a mini example of this when Mount St. Helens blew its top. I went on my roof. I was on my roof a couple of days, about, about a week after that, and my roof was covered with, it looked like salt, and, it looked like pepper. My whole roof was covered with sandy, pepper-looking sand. And I said to myself, where on earth did that come from? And it dawned on me that we just had had the eruption of Mount St. Helens. We see it in hurricanes. We see it in tornadoes. We see it in earthquakes. We see it in natural disasters of all kinds. But I think the thing that should come to your mind when you look at chapter 24, verse 1, where it says, Be Lord, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it a waste, distorts its surface, and scatters abroad its inhabitants, I think you ought to look at Noah's flood. Because it fits the description of a worldwide. See, this is not just any disaster. This is a disaster of worldwide proportions. And that's what I mean when I say it's like walking out of a dangerous uh, forest and walking into a clearing where you see a grand vista because you see pockets of judgment on nations and pockets of judgment on peoples in chapters 1 through 23. And then all of a sudden, God includes the whole earth. And we start asking the question, Wow, when's this all going to happen? And so we go to the next verse. But, I, you know, when we ask that question, when's this all going to happen? When, what do you know that the Bible already teaches about when we're going to have the next earth being emptied, made waste, distorted, the surface distorted, and the people scattered abroad? When next does the Bible say that's going to happen? Revelation, right? The book of Revelation. And it begins with the seven years of tribulation where the Bible indicates that there are going to be cosmic disturbances that can be easily described by what is said here. Then you have the passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, where the Bible says that God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And that's all on the positive side. There's nothing negative about all of that. And all of that revolves around what most important event, whether you spread it out by a couple of years or whether you, you kind of condense it, it all revolves around what important event 
thus everybody together the second coming of Christ now verse 2 we're going to save for the application so we'll come back to verse 2 I want you to go to verse 3 the land shall be entirely emptied and utterly plundered and so you know we sit around and we think about it from a scientific perspective and we think about it from a philosophical perspective and we think about it from a human perspective forget all of that Verse 3 says, the Lord has spoken his word. This is all going to happen because the Lord said it's going to happen. Don't try to figure out whether it's possible or the potential is there. God said, the Lord said, this is going to happen. Verse 4, let's go to verse 4. The Bible says, the earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes and fades away. We have God's description of what's going to happen in chapter 24, verses 1 and 3. And then we have the reaction of the earth to all of this. And it says the earth mourns, the earth fades away, the world languishes and fades away. Look down at the verse 5, we'll say verse 4, the haughty people of the earth languish, we'll save that. The earth is also defiled under its inhabitants because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore the curse has devoured the earth and those who dwell in it are desolate. Now, before we look at the last verse, take a look at that and ask yourself the question, where have I heard this before? Where have I heard before that the earth is defiled under its inhabitants because they have transgressed the laws of God? Where have I heard that before? I've heard it as early as Genesis chapter 3. Right? Adam and Eve sinned. And because Adam and Eve sinned, God cursed the earth. And now the earth, your garden doesn't grow without weeds. Now we have to clean up the woods. Now we have to cut our grass. Well, I, I don't know if that we had to do that. We probably would have to do that. But I tell you what, it wouldn't be like me yesterday, sweating so bad that the water just running down through my eyebrows right into my eyes. And yesterday was a good day to cut grass. You see the point? Now, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. I think we are living in a day and age where we need to repeat this passage of Scripture. In fact, I'm sending it out there. If you don't have this memorized, you should. You and I should memorize this passage of Scripture because in this day and age, we should be as reminded of this passage of Scripture as we are reminded of John 3.16. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 and following. Now, to save time, I'm just going to read through it and make a comment or two if I need to. For I consider, said the Apostle Paul, that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The glory that shall be revealed in us. Man, we're going to have glory revealed in us when Christ comes back and resurrects our bodies. For the earnest expectation of what? Creation. Creation is moaning. Creation is groaning, eagerly waiting for the revealing of the sons of God, waiting for the second coming of Christ and the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was what? Subjected to futility. See how that goes along with Isaiah 24? The Bible tells us that the earth was defiled under its inhabitants because of our sin. Not the earth's, our sin. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. God said, listen, you know, the earth is going to be cursed for a while, but I have not abandoned my original plan. My original plan still stands, and that is that I created this world, and I'm bringing it back to its pristine condition. Isn't that what this is really talking about? Yes. The creation itself also will be delivered, verse 21, from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. We know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now, eagerly waiting for the redemption of our bodies. When God then, I mean, He's going to redeem our bodies, He's going to transform our bodies, and He's transforming the earth for us to live on when He does that. All right? So, maybe then we'll be able to put those lawnmowers away, and <laughs> I don't know. There's still work. You know, God created us with certain, certain things to do, and we're going to be doing them forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, but you're not going to have to worry about getting tired. You don't have to worry about getting exhausted. And there's plenty of downtime, enormous amount of downtime. And, uh, and I always love the illustration of I can't wait. I, I, I walk to the highest mountain and sit by the nicest waterfall and, and talk to my friends and say, you know what? This is just beginning. We'll get to enjoy this for all eternity. Anyway, that's what that's all about. That's what that's all about. And so Isaiah, now don't forget, the Old Testament is the Bible of the apostles, because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. So do you think that Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and the other disciples were aware of this passage of Scripture? You bet they were. You bet they were, and they understood it, very, they understood it as well as God allowed them to understand it before the, um, before the coming of Christ. And then when Christ came and lifted the veil and the covering over everything, boy, everything just fell into place. And they're writing about it now in the New Testament. Now, let's go to, so, so you see, you're connecting this passage of Scripture with Genesis 3 and Romans 8. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. So, look at verse 7 and following. During this period of time, and when we talk about impending judgment on the earth, you know, I'm already starting to make a conclusion that this is the judgment of the last day. God judges from time to time, and He judges nations all through the years, and He judges us personally, but in, in our case, it's correction. It's, um, it's, to, it's for, our, for our personal um, benefit. But uh, look how He describes in verses 7 and following. The new wine fails, the vine languishes, and all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourine ceases, the noise of the jubilant ends, and, and the joy of the harp ceases, and they shall not drink wine with a song. Strong drink is bitter to those who, who drink it. So in order, to, in order to soothe the minds of those who are, who are under the judgment of God, 
They're going to have some parties, hoping that the parties are going to make them feel better, and it doesn't matter what they do at their parties, it's not going to feel any better. The music isn't going to help. The drink isn't going to help. Nothing is going to help. The noise of the jubilant ends. The joy of the harp ceases. The city is of confusion, broken down. Every house is shut. And, and, and you read these descriptions. You look at this and you say, wow, this is... Boy, where am I going to be? And what's going to be my place in all of this? Keep asking yourself that question because I want to answer it here in the next 10 minutes. So I'm going to skip verses 13 through 16 for the moment. And uh, I want to go to 17 and 18 and just kind of confirm what we already know. I'll read it. Maybe we need to make a comment or two, but we'll see. Fear and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. And it shall be that if you get to flee from the noise of the fear and fall into the pit, if you come up from the pit, you'll be caught in a snare. You'll go from one problem to another. And then look at verse 18 at the end. And the foundations of the earth are shaken. The windows from on high are open. Now, we, we just talked about many natural disasters. He's talking about the big one here in chapter 24, verse 1. And there's only two big ones that he's ever promised and orchestrated. Number one, the windows of heaven were open when? The flood of Noah's day. And the earth was changed. And the inhabitants were scattered. And he comes back to that and he describes the earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. The earth is shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall totter like a hut. Why? And he comes back to the sin of the curse. The sin and the curse. Its transgression is because of the transgression of the inhabitants of the earth are going to be heavy upon the earth and it will fall in that condition and not rise again in that condition. So you got a good picture of that. If you have an imagination of any kind, you can really, really picture that well. Now, we don't have time to go over some of these other verses, but I want to go to I want to go to verse 23, and when you read this this week, I think this will all fall in much easier than it would have otherwise. By the way, let me just suggest to you that in verse 21, when you see the judgment of God punishing the inhabitants of the earth, He's going to punish the kings of the earth, specifically, and He's going to punish the exalted ones on high. We're talking about the spiritual, we're talking about the spiritual forces uh, in, in, in the heavens when we read that. God is going to punish the devil and all of his army. All right, having said that, in verse 23, then the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign. Everybody together, the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. Now, I'm a literalist. 
I believe that when you read the Bible, if the literal sense makes common sense, don't seek any other sense. So when the Bible says that God is going to, the Lord is going to reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, I believe that He's going to reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, but it's talking about the earth. He's not talking about the heavenly Jerusalem. He's talking about the earth. He's writing to Jewish people. He's giving them an expectation. They reiterate that expectation in the time of the New Testament, and Jesus never denies it, never shuts them down and says, oh no, you're misunderstanding the whole thing. There's not going to be any such thing as the Lord ruling in Jerusalem. He doesn't do that. In fact, Here's the greatest part of the passage. I want to skip chapter 25, verses 1 through 5, and go right to verse 6, which kind of picks up where we just left off. And in this mountain, Mount Zion, and in this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast. A feast. Now, he uses two illustrations here to describe that, but let me simply say this. When he talks about a feast, he is talking about the very best. He's talking about the quality of the food. He's talking about the quantity of the food. He's talk, he's, it's like him saying, you know what? We're going to give you a, a feast. Is, what's a feast today? A feast is a banquet, right? I like to look at it as a smorgasbord. Where man, you can, listen, that's what he's talking about. He is trying to get us to understand that it's like you and I going to the store and buying the most expensive steak we can and bringing it out and putting it on the grill and enjoying it. That's what he's saying. Taking the best aged wine, he's using that illustration as well. Now, we were at the store yesterday. What was the most expensive steak? Oh, I don't even want to tell you. I thought for just a brief moment, we saw some ground beef for $1.95. We jumped at it. We got it. $1.95 a pound. 73% fat-free. We jumped at it. We got a bunch of that. And I said, oh, I'm going to check the steaks out. Man, $13 a pound, $14, $15, $16, $17 a pound. Little piece. Little piece. I've got to, got to put them in little pieces now. Oh, no, no, no. God is providing a feast of choice pieces, the best of everything. And he will destroy on this mountain. He will destroy the covering that has been cast over the people and the veil that is spread over everybody. Now, you and I know that the New Testament teaches. See, if you want to connect this passage with something in the New Testament, you would go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 15 and following, wouldn't you? Where God talks about how the veil has been on the eyes of people since the Old Testament, and Jesus has lifted that veil so that now that we can see. And for the Jewish people, God is going to lift it here in this situation. Uh, this feast, this feast, as far as I'm concerned, this is the same thing as the great supper of Luke chapter 14 and Matthew chapter 22, where God provides a, a, a dinner, a, a big banquet for his son. 
where the king does that for his son. And you'll remember, you'll remember, everybody's invited, everybody's invited, and, uh, and, and, and everybody makes excuses until finally God says, go out and the king says, go out into the highways and the byways and invite everybody. So I'll tell you right off the bat, when I ask myself the question where I, where I want to be in all of this, I want to be at this feast. I want to be among those who accepted the invitation and didn't say, ah, I got better things to do. I got better things to do. This is the same thing as the marriage feast of the Lamb, as far as I can tell. I would take you to the book of Revelation, chapter 19, right before we have the finality of everything, where God says the marriage is prepared, now the banquet feast is ready, and we want everybody to enjoy the marriage feast of the Lamb. Oh, but looky here. Looky here. In verse 7, he says, He will destroy in this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. And then look at what he says next. He will what? Swallow up death forever. Now, what do you know in the rest of the Bible that talks about that, that this, this comes from? I mean, this, this actually feeds what we know in the New Testament. In the New Testament, in the book of... Uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the resurrection chapter, what does the Bible say in there? After we have this full description of the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of every believer, imagine this. One of these days, we're putting flags on every grave out there that we can think of, that, um, that we can find, and, that, uh, and they're really good at. They're really good at, at uh, identifying all these uh, places where our veterans are, and our people who have served are. They're very good at that. I've noticed over the years, they got a record of it. Nothing's better than God's record of every believer, and God's going to resurrect everyone, even, even bad people, you know, get resurrected. They don't get resurrected to life, they get resurrected to death, but he's going to join this temporary separation between body and soul. He's going to put us all back together. And the Bible says that, that death then will be swallowed up forever. You know, I don't have to worry about it. Don't even think about it. We don't have to worry about it. Oh, death, says 1 Corinthians 15, where is your sting? Oh, grave. Yes. Where's the victory? The victory is in the second coming of Christ. But look at what he says next to that. You also can identify with this. He says he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will what? Everybody together. Wipe away tears from all faces. Uh, that takes me right to Revelation chapter 7. And it takes me to chapter 21 of Revelation. Where the Bible talks about the new heaven and the new earth. And in the new heaven and the new earth... After you see the first tears in seven is the great tribulation period of time. I want to be among those who God says, I'm wiping away your tears. Don't worry about the tribulation period. You don't have to worry about it. But I'm also looking forward, I want to be the person who experiences the new heaven and the new earth, chapter 21, verse 4, where he'll wipe away every tear, every tear from my So where do you fit in? Where do you fit in? Let's, uh, let's take a look at that. Well, here's what you have to do when you read the sermon in Isaiah 24, 25, 26, and 27. You have to pick a person that you identify with. That's what you do. You always do. If you, 
I'm, how can you enjoy Scripture if you just read it just for information purposes and you don't jump into the, the picture itself and say, okay, who do I identify with here? Who am I going to be a part of going through the account and the story? Uh, I, I don't, you've got to do that. You've got to do that. And so, can I do that with an Old Testament passage of Scripture? Yeah, he's writing to the Jewish people, but I want to tell you something. The Jewish people are, are not the only ones that are part of the family of God. The bride of Christ is pretty big and includes the Jews and the Gentiles. So, when you say, do I get to attend this feast? You do. You do. If you know Christ. Now, who do I identify with here? I'll tell you who you don't want to identify with. <laughs> you don't want to identify with the people in verse 2. So it doesn't matter, see. This is going to affect everybody. There's nobody going to be able to hide and say, oh, I've, you know what, I built, built myself a bomb shelter that is so deep that I'm going to survive this experience. You know, as with the people, so with the priest. The priest. As with the servant, so with the master. As with the maid, so with the mistress. As the buyer, so with the seller. As the lender, so with... Nobody is unaffected by this. It is going to involve everybody. And I tell you what, it's going to involve in verse 4 the haughty people of the earth, and I don't want to be a part of that group. It's going to be... Uh, and you can go down through here, and, and I would say generally it's going to, it's going to involve the merry-hearted people. Oh, the, the people who, it doesn't make a difference how bad things are. I'm the life of the party. I can rise above everything. Let's just have a wonderful time going through this torment or this time period. I don't want to be those people. I don't want to be the merry-hearted. I don't want to be identified with any. i tell you who I want to be identified with. I want to be identified with the people in verses 13, 14, 15, and 16. Now listen, I'm a premillennialist, and so you know that, what that means for me. I'm not only a premillennialist, but I'm a, I'm a pre-trib rapture person. That doesn't mean that if you're a mid-trib rapture person or a post-trib rapture person or you're an amillennialist, I appreciate those ideas. I don't have any problem with them. In the long run, like people who say to me, people who say to me, uh, can you lose your salvation? I say, well, if you think you can, you need to repent. <laughs> and they say to me, oh, I think you can lose your salvation. Well, if you can, you need to repent. See, what's the difference? You see the point? And so I, I'm not bothered by all of these eschatological issues. I'm just telling you from my perspective, if I were to put myself into this story, I want to be among the people in 13 and following, where the Bible says that when this all happens in verse 13, it's going to be like the shaking of an olive tree and like the gleaning of grapes when the vintage is done. All the harvest is done, and you go through the fields after the harvest is done, and you're going to find a grape or two. That's it, just a grape or two. But they are the ones, you see, these are all the ones who are left in verse 14. They shall lift up their voice. They shall sing for the majesty of the Lord. They shall cry aloud from the sea. They shall glorify the Lord in the dawning light in the east. And they'll, they'll, they'll glorify the name of the Lord in the west, the coastlands of the west. This really is describing us with the process of the gospel. This is incredible. And, uh, and, and, and by the way, you have two really great passages of Scripture in Isaiah 24, 25, 26, and 27 that actually tell you how your, attitude, your attitude is going to be such that this is what you're going to sing. 
So when you get to that chapter, read it over very carefully. Because if that's the way you feel, and that's the way you believe, you're definitely included in uh, God's preservation from this judgment day. Well, uh, we can't go whole much further on that, but uh, I definitely want to end up being one of the guests at the feast, at the marriage feast of the Lamb, don't you? Amen. Amen. Well, isn't that, uh, isn't that bright? Yeah, you got, some, you got some stuff in there that isn't so hot. But uh, the future's bright because God knows how to protect, just like Paul says, God knows how to protect the righteous from his wrath. He'll do it. All right, we don't have any more time this morning, but there's your, there's your preface to those four chapters. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. It's such an encouragement to us. And Lord, we've waited for you. As you say, for those who are going to be on the right side of all of this, we have waited for you, Lord. We have trusted in you. We know that you have the power to save. We know that your plan for this world and this universe is far grander than we could even imagine. We thank you for being willing to wipe away every tear and, and to stomp death to death, so to speak. Lord, thanks so much. What an encouragement this is. Help us to really enjoy reading. And Lord, if we do not fall into the category of those who are trusting you, Lord, grip our hearts. Take the covering off of our eyes, the veil from us, so that we can clearly see that the best is yet to come. In Jesus, your name we pray, amen.